The first reading is from Psalm 51. <clears throat> it's located in page 405 of your pew Bibles. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God, who give, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You did not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you, do not you will not despise. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Today's New Testament reading comes from Mark 2, and it's 708 on the Pew Bibles, page 708. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered that were there that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four of them. Since they could not get to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus and after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralysed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there, thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Get up, take your mat and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, Get up, take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat, 
and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone and they praised God saying, we had never seen anything like this. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him meeting with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but you are not? Jesus answered, How can the guests of a bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, a new piece will pull away from the old, (coughs) making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. This is the word of the Lord. If you're tempted uh, a moment ago to close Mark, uh, open it up again. Uh, We're working our way through the book of Mark, uh, getting the opportunity to see Jesus in all his glory and splendour in preparation lead up to Easter. Uh, And so all this term we'll be looking at Mark's gospel Uh, But not only do you need it open in front of you that you can check what I'm saying, we need God's Spirit to help us. So let's pray. Our Lord and Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its goodness. We ask that now we would see just how good it is. Uh, By your Spirit creating us pure hearts through your word, we ask that you would be uh, renewing a steadfast spirit within us. Father, as we come to know you more through your word, Uh, May we grow in our love of you and our longing to live for you and love like you do. Uh, In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, John Calvin spoke uh, about true wisdom. Uh, And he said true wisdom consists in two parts. It consists of knowledge of God and knowledge of yourself. Uh, And these two parts, he he would say, inform one another. So the more that you understand God the more you actually see what you are like as his image. And a failure to know yourself will actually distort your approach to your maker and saviour. You'll see him through a skewed lens. So true wisdom is having a right understanding of God and having a right understanding of yourself. And and without both those parts functioning, uh, real wisdom will always be elusive to you. So we continue in Mark's Gospel, in Mark chapter 2, and that pressing question is, Uh, Who is Jesus? It still hangs over the chapter. But before we we step in and we look at all the evidence about Jesus, uh, we must realise that our knowledge of him depends heavily on our self-perception. 
So does this sound like you? All of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Now, I know, Cindy, got you to fess up before and put your hands in the air and, you know, I know we've all kind of owned these little black hearts just moments ago, but, uh, but when you think of approaching God, you know, would you list your credentials this way? That you wouldn't even look up to heaven, but you beat your breast and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Our 39 articles describe uh, people, just everyday normal people, you and me that we hang out with, as naturally far from righteousness, as inclined to evil, as lusting for what is contrary to the Spirit, and therefore every person born into this world deserveth God's wrath and damnation. Does that sit comfortably with you? Is that how you see yourself? How do you perceive yourself? Now, I'm not at this point trying to persuade you why you should see yourself this way. I want to flag it simply just so that you know as we look at Mark 2, your self-perception, especially in terms of your sin and your failures, that will make all the difference to how you appreciate Jesus when we look at Mark 2. Because uh, the section, uh, the little stories that come together, it's, it's united by conflict. Uh, Mark doesn't try and build suspense. He doesn't kind of flesh out details. He gives this kind of stripped-back account, the raw facts and an account of conflict. You know, there's this sharp move, if you were with us last week, uh, in Mark chapter 1, Jesus was doing great things and his popularity was growing and, and people were coming to him and, and we get to chapter 2 and he's still doing great and gracious things but now enemies are being created by it. And it all hinges on how people perceive themselves. And so if those descriptions I gave before felt a little uncomfortable, even offensive, uh, you're not going to like Jesus. But if any of those rang true... Uh, if you see those kind of faults and flaws and failures within yourself, then I suspect your heart will be warmed as we look at Jesus this morning. Three answers to who Jesus is this morning. The help of sinners, the friend of sinners, the joy of sinners. First is the help of sinners in verse 1 to 12. So in 2-1... Uh, he's gone back to Capernaum and there's a sense of excitement. He's done all these great miracles there already. And so word gets out and people are flocking to him. Uh, in verse 2, there's so many there, they're kind of spilling out the door and they're on the street and you can imagine they're kind of trying to lean in the window. Uh, he can't get out, he's kind of trapped in there and likewise people can't get to him. And, and he uses the chance still, all right, people are here, he'll keep bringing in the word of God. As we saw last week, that's why he'd come. And Mark keeps a, a sense of urgency when he writes this up. Uh, he doesn't give any flourishes. We just meet this group of friends who are determined to bring their paralytic mate to Jesus. So in verse 4, uh, they go up, they see the crowd, they go up onto the roof uh, and they make a hole in, in what would have been a thatched roof. I'm, I'm saying that so you're not worried that concrete and tiles were falling onto Jesus. Um, and, and then they lower him down to Jesus' feet. And then we get the twist. Verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Not you're healed, off you go walk. Your sins are forgiven. And, and you can almost sense you kind of, Jesus, did you not notice? <laughs> you, know, you can imagine as well, at that moment you could, you could cut the air with a knife because Mark doesn't actually go to the paralytic's response and he doesn't go to the friend's response who went to all this effort. In verse 6, we go to the minds of the scribes. 
These were the men who took God seriously. Um, so they were trained in interpreting the law and uh, by the laying on of hands, by a special ceremony, they were recognised publicly. These are the guys who guard truth. And they hear blasphemy. They hear lies that Jesus is saying about God in their view. For only God has the right to forgive sins. And rather than back down, Jesus just backs up his offensive comment. Uh, He knows what's in their hearts. And so he does what's harder to make false claims about in front of a crowd. He heals men. And so so verse 12, to the crowd's amazement, uh, this man's wasted muscles are restored, his his paralysis, we don't know how long or what, but it's gone and he walks. Jesus breaks the power of sickness so that you and I can know that without a doubt, Jesus has the power to break sin as well. Mark shows us Jesus to help of sinners. Uh, At one level, uh, he challenges our understanding of sickness. So Jesus dealing with the paralytic actually says there is an intimate link between sin and sickness, just as there's a link between healing and forgiveness. And that jars, I think, with 21st century ears. Uh, you know, there is a moral, there is a spiritual, there is a, a theological explanation for illness. You know, when humanity rejected God in Genesis 3, death uh, and its handmaiden sickness entered into this world. Now, it's, we've got to be careful. It's not saying that every instance of sickness is, is just simplistically tied to a moment of sin. It's not going, I've got a tummy bug. Oh, that's probably because I was a bit greedy the other day. It's not like that, but the reality is while this world is spiritually disconnected from God, there will always be sickness and physical suffering. Yes, we should. Uh, It's right, proper, keep doing it, pour money into AIDS and cancer research. You know, that's it, loving other people. But the real long-term solution to sickness is spiritual. And that brings another challenge. He, He challenges our view and understanding of sin. Sin is not just a little character flaw. Uh, It is a bigger and deeper problem than sickness. It's as though, uh, you know, this kind of instance, Jesus walking through the spinal care unit uh, and and a ward there and he's looking around and he's saying, you know, no, no, the physical problem is not the issue. I, I see something deeper, worse, more painful, more insidious. Yeah, he sees a man lying unable to move, but, but like a good doctor, he goes beyond the symptom and he roots out the cause. You know, how, how quick are we to pray about sickness compared to naming and confessing sins before God? You know, how often do we ask for people to go, oh yeah, you know, my cousin's a bit sick, I wouldn't mind if you pray they've got an operation coming up. And that's good and that's right, I'm not saying don't, but, but do we at the same time share, I'm really struggling with pride at the moment, would you pray for me? Yeah, we must care for those who are sick and suffering, but, but to simply... Uh, address the symptom of sickness uh, either lacks insight or compassion we don't see what the real problem is but most of all this is an incident of comfort Uh, jesus words in verse 10 that you may know the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins i say to you rise that is jesus is able to deal with that deep deep problem of sin you know every healing he does drives back death drives back sin's reign in, in him getting the paralytic to walk, Jesus wants you, know, you and me to know that he can break both sin's power and penalty. 
Why? Well, the scribes are right. You know, he's no mere man. He's God himself. Yeah, who is Jesus? He is the help of sinners. Yeah, he deals with the burden of guilt for, for every selfish thought, every harsh word, every godless action. And it's not just that he, he takes the feeling away, uh, though he does. That he actually removes its grip so, so that it becomes possible to live the way God intended. He actually removes the wrath and damnation that we deserve. And when you get that, there's a clear implication, isn't there? That you would go to him and you would go to him with as many as you possibly can. You, know, you can't deal with your sin and he can do far more than we can imagine. Yeah, and like the, the friends of the paralytic, faith in Jesus means we, we rush the spiritually sick to him. Uh, in 1787, William Carey stood up uh, in front of a minister's fraternal uh, and he asked them, a little pointedly, does Christ commission... Uh, to reach all the nations, is it still binding? Do we still have to go and reach all the nations with Jesus? Uh, and the infamous response he got of a guy called John Ryland, another minister, was, sit down, young man, you are an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. And rightly, you kind of hear that, and you, you know, we think Carey, hero, uh, Ryland, boo. Uh, you know, we despise that kind of response, and... And wouldn't it be disturbing if, in practice, we were more like Ryland than the enthusiast Carey? You know, we know the one who can deal with sin. Don't we want more to come to him? Over at our Lavender Bay congregation at uh, the 6pm service, there's a woman who really understands how Jesus is the only help of sinners. Um, I'm very encouraged by her. Her, her flatmate uh, is not a believer, um, but in a really loving and helpful way, she's spoken to him about Jesus uh, she's invited him to church and he's come a couple of times. She's given him uh, an essential Jesus, a little copy of Luke's Gospel. He, he taken it. I don't know if he's read it. Uh, but it's not just him she's concerned for. She's um, tried to persuade me the value of Facebook. I'm still holding firm and fast against it. But you know, she says you know, it's a great way to just gently share the impact Jesus has had on her with as many friends as possible. Now, she understands who Jesus is. And if we've grasped Jesus to help of sinners, we go to him and we have to ask the question, who are we bringing to him? He's the help of sinners. He's also the friend of sinners. Uh, the next incident Mark gives us is, is how Jesus doesn't treat uh, sinners simply as a notch on the belt, a problem to be solved. He cares for them as people. Now, in verse 13, he, he heads to the seaside um, the sea, in the thinking of the time, was another wilderness area, a place of rage, a place of power. And again, he gives this radical call. Uh, in verse 14, uh, as he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me. Simple, unqualified call. Another little hint to the fact that uh, without a divine call, no one can be saved. And it echoes the call, if you're with us again, when we looked at Mark 1, uh, of the fishermen. Uh, but it's bolder this time. Uh, he's not calling here just some you know, average blokes, he's calling a tax collector. Uh, given Levi's place by the sea, so his booth was near the sea, he was probably a guy who collected the toll on the fish, which means he was probably and most likely known to Jesus' first disciples, the other fishermen. And he wouldn't have been liked. You know, the, the tax collectors were outcasts in society. They collected taxation for uh, the in, invading and ruling Romans. Uh, they're also known to extort uh, for their own commission, heavily as they could. And yet Jesus invites him 
that kind of guy, come follow me. And for Levi, it's an even bigger call. If he left his posts, he could never return. You can't go back to the job once you leave that. Unlike James and John, who, you know, if things went pear-shaped, could go back fishing with their dad. He was giving it all up. But the biggest shock is yet to come. He's not just getting a band of undesirables to follow him. He's making bad friends. So he goes around and has a meal in verse 15 at Levi's house. Um, even today, you know that if you go to someone's house for a meal, it's a, it's a sign of friendship. Uh, the people who you have around, the people whose place you go to, they're your friends. They're the people, at least you hope, would be your friends. It's an even more powerful statement in a culture that uh, had religious purity rules about who you could eat with. And again, Mark doesn't record Levi and the sinner's conversation, uh, but we get the scandalised scribes. Yeah, guys who had worked hard, they put effort into being holy because they knew God is holy. They took it seriously. And they can't understand why is it that Jesus seems to care so little for holiness. His response in 17, it's not the healthy you need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. That is, he, he takes it to them. He mocks those who will keep their distance. Um, he's not really admitting, oh, you're actually, you're righteous, you're fine. No, he's just pointing out he's come for sinners. He comes for those who recognise their need rather than those who are self-reliant. He came for, for those who see their good works actually as just filthy rags. He came for those who look to heaven and don't try and cite their credentials. Now, not that Jesus is condoning sin. His friendship transforms them like a doctor does with the sick. You know, doctors don't go to sick patients in the hope of keeping them and remain, that they'd remain sick permanently. No, no, they actually want to heal them. Uh, and it's not that he doesn't value holiness. It's that he cares about holiness so much he will break the barriers that wretched sinners feel uh, distanced by and invite them in. So who is Jesus? He's the friend of sinners. Yeah, and that's great news if... You see your sin constantly before your eyes. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you were doing. He came for sinners. Jesus came for you. You don't need to earn his merit or his favour. Uh, Thomas Long tells the story of staying in a motel. He was a businessman on a trip. Uh, and he was on a, a work trip staying in this motel. And a note had been put on the elevator. Uh, and it said, party tonight, room 210, 8pm, everyone invited. And he got a little curious as a, a kind of regular traveller. He, he began to wonder what were the kind of people who would turn up to a party like that with an invitation like that. You know, tired salesmen, uh, bored holiday makers, you know, people who, for whatever reason, feel dis disconnected uh, and not in their usual zone. And so the idea excited him enough. He thought, I'm, I'll go. I'm going to go along and see the kind of people who would go there. And he turned up and it turned out it was a hoax. Uh, somebody's practical joke, they thought it was really funny to put a party invite that wasn't. And he reflected actually afterwards, that was too bad. That was a real shame. Uh, to quote him, he said, for a brief moment, those of us staying at the motel were tantalised by the possibility there might just be a party going on somewhere to which we were all invited. A party where it didn't matter nearly as much what got us in the door as what would happen after we arrived. Yeah, and Jesus throws that kind of party. You know, his meal at Levi's place is just a, a little sample, a little taster of the, the heavenly banquet that he's preparing with this strange guest list that he's assembling even now. doesn't matter what gets you there, but 
what, it, what matters is after you've arrived. And with that kind of understanding of friendship is a real challenge, isn't it? It's a, it's a comfort that he'd be our friend, but he, he breaks those social barriers we're inclined to erect. He, he redefines who we befriend. We, we share meals and our homes with people who haven't earned it. Uh, someone told me their experience at another church uh, that pushed um, gospel communities. I think that was the language they used. Uh, little, little small groups within church that mixed up people to, together to kind of share the ins and outs of life. And yeah, he wasn't completely persuaded it needed to be pushed. Uh, but his wife, um, as often wives do, very helpfully asked him uh, if it wasn't for, this gospel, for, for the gospel in this program, uh, whether he really would have shared a meal with these people. Now, like the scribes, where we can be quick to find reasons to fail others. And it's what makes Jesus so refreshing, isn't it? He doesn't just help us as though we're a problem to be solved. He invites us to be friends. And so our third point, our shortest point, Jesus is the joy of sinners. Now, it's obvious to the crowds that there's this growing rift between Jesus and other teachers. They don't need the Sydney Morning Herald to report like Gillard and Rudd. They've, they've worked it out by watching. You know, and so the issue they ask in verse 18 is about fasting. Here's another point of difference between Jesus and others. Um, fasting was only commanded one time in the Old Testament, uh, the Day of Atonement, once a year, where sin was symbolically taken away. Now, people did fast at other times voluntarily, uh, and it was either connected to mourning their sin uh, or freeing up time to pray. And Jesus answers their question, not with a straight answer, but with more questions. You know, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? Get it? it? It makes no sense. It's inappropriate to grieve sin when the solution to sin is there and with you. you know, when he's taken away, he says, yeah, a reference to his death, yes, more than then, but but not while he's with them. Yeah, anything less than joy would suggest that Jesus hasn't actually dealt with the problem. And that's why he goes on with these um, stories, these illustrations about the new destroying the old when they get mixed together. And so he uses in verse 21 the language of ripping, the language of tearing. Uh, it's just like uh, the, the heavens ripped open at Jesus' baptism and just like at the end of Mark's Gospel, the temple curtain is, is torn in two at his death. There is this sense in ripping and tearing of, of something momentous, something breaking into our experience that changes everything, something genuinely new that means you can never go back to the old. And Jesus is saying that the, the old days and the old ways of mourning sin with uncertainty are gone. And he has come to bring joy. It's why we, we who have Christ present with us by his spirit living in it, we live joy and relief. You know, we are not people who are weighed down by guilt and always mourning it. Yes, we do know our identity. We do come to the Lord crying for mercy, but we know it's dealt with. Now, I'm not going to ban fasting. Uh, in Acts 13, uh, they fast to create uh, time to pray uh, in a big ministry decision. You've got to remember there were no kind of microwave meals, no refrigeration. It took ages to prepare a meal in those times. They took time out. Uh, I'm not going to ban fasting, but, but whether or not you fast, we must live with evident joy. You know, we stand in Jesus, and so on that final day, the, the wrath and damnation we deserve will pass right over us. That is joy. And we need to express that joy noticeably. Like It was visible, it created a stir, just how joyous and unfasting they were. 
Um, I, I get to conduct weddings for people. Uh, I'm reminded uh, just how little singing we do as a society when I do weddings. <laughs> uh, even with this framework, it's a happy day, everyone's glad to be there, it's a wedding, that's super. Even with familiar songs, I always advise, you know, Amazing Grace, that's a good one to go with. People can join in that even if they're not regulars. Uh, people struggle to sing. And, but it's a key part of our meeting together. Why? Well, James 5.13, if, if anyone, is any one of you in trouble, he should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. You know, we sing, uh, even if your voice isn't great. You know, we, we sing, uh, even if the style isn't yours. We sing, even if you don't quite know the tune. You know, we sing, even if the, the kind of concerns of life are weighing you down. We sing because we know that Jesus has dealt with our sin completely. We are people of joy and we want it to be noticeable so that people like Leslie can walk by and hear it and wander in. You know, it's why a reflection on our Easter dawn service was that um, you know, perhaps we should be having a champagne breakfast rather than hot cross buns. You know, not that everyone likes a champagne breakfast, not that people don't like a hot cross bun, but we want to keep thinking of ways that it's obvious we are people of joy and Jesus has dealt with it all. You know, keep, keep thinking of ways that are noticeable and are creative, that, that Jesus is our joy, a joy for sinners that others might notice and come to him. So real wisdom, true wisdom consists of both knowing God and knowing yourself. And if you came this morning with a clear perception of your sin and that sin in others, I trust you leave perceiving Jesus just as clearly. He is your friend. He is the help of sinners. And in knowing the one who came, not for the righteous, but for the sinners, I hope you leave with great joy. Let me pray. Our Lord and Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for who he is. We thank you that he has the power and authority to deal fully with sin because of his death upon the cross. We thank you that he has conquered it for. He is not just a man, he is God himself. Father, we thank you that he invites us to be his friends. And we pray that we would be people who know that so deeply that we'd be filled with a, a joy uh, that we might express. Uh, Father, may we delight in the fact that Jesus has come for us sinners. In his name we pray. Amen.